0: All right, I'm Evan Unger and I guess I consider myself a world-class fixer of the mess that is meetings and you're listening to the Agile Uprising podcast.
1: Welcome to another edition of the Adult Uprising Podcast. I'm your host, Andy cleff and joining me today, my colleague, Mark Storey. Welcome. Thanks, Andy. This is a hat trick for you. Yep. Third, third time around. Think we'll get it right this time? Nope. Okay. We'll have you back for a fourth. You were here at the uh, tail end of 2021. We did an Effective Leadership Principles podcast, and then we followed it up. Maybe a month later, Autonomy with Alignment, really uh, two wonderful shows, and you can find them in our archives. And we're excited to have our guest here, Evan Unger, world-class fixer for the mess that our meetings. Welcome, sir.
0: It is great to be here, Andy. Thank
1: you for having me. So, Mark, you introduced us to Evan. I'm curious, how did you two cross paths? When, where, how?
2: I was introduced to Evan and what Evan does, I think it was around 2009, something like that, when I worked for Colorado Workers' Compensation Insurance Company, Pinnacle.
1: Hmm.
2: And I think the uh, it, it, Pinnacle has an interesting culture. But one of the things I learned very quickly when I got there as a, a scrum master is that the way I was running meetings was entirely unacceptable. They have a very strong culture around having effective meetings. And I I started arranging meetings and, and people would, it bordered on anger when I came in with a traditional agenda, they could not understand what it was I was trying to do. And so I think it was about six weeks into my employment there where my boss said, Hey, Mark, you need to go to this workshop. And so that's, And it wasn't because I was, it wasn't because I was doing it bad, badly per se, it was because I was doing it the way I was taught, which I think most people learn how to, to, I don't even want to say lead a meeting, how to organize a meeting in a very ineffective way where it's always, Hey, let's get together and talk about some stuff. I don't want to get together and talk about stuff anymore. I want to get things done. And so I think that's when I, when I went through what was then called the facilitative leadership workshop, that was, uh. Eye opening for me. And and honestly, it was a uh, career trajectory changing uh, kind of event for me.
1: Yeah, it went downhill from there, I guess, huh? Yeah, apparently so. So we're going to fact check here on the spot, Evan. Uh, Can you correlate Mark's story that you know, collaborate? Does that sound familiar? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of times we were teaching people
0: how to facilitate as a broader transfer. Transformation and change initiative. So Pinnacle was going through a vision and values process that our consulting firm was working with. And generally, what we would do is offer facilitation training as part of the broader cultural initiative. So I ran the program a ton with uh, Pinnacle over the years because uh, it's a very practical skill set. You know, if we're gonna in a lead change, we need to know how to facilitate complex meetings. And so Mark yeah I think it was about either 2009 2010 Mark 10. somewhere in there if I'm trying to recall and we probably ran the program for Pinnacle I don't remember 10 you know times maybe more and and with with really cuz I think Mark it's interesting we learned watching meetings from the senior people in the organization and awful they're just horrible at it I mean, they just model what misery looks like, and then we're like, "Oh, I guess that's what a meeting looks like." The leader
2: talks, and everyone just listens or pretends to listen. I think frequently, the more senior people are, the worse their meetings are. Oh, without question. Yeah,
1: we'll we'll get into power dynamics, but before before we do, Evan, how did you how did you get into this business? Tell us a little bit about your backstory and your journey. Well. <laughs> You know, I, I, it's interesting you say journey because one of the, I used to do a lot
0: of team buildings and one of the exercises we did was called journey lines, which I learned from my mentor because a lot of mentors that I had back when I was in Merck uh, came out of the G tradition of workout and the change acceleration process when Jack Welch was the big thing. Yeah. Uh, and so you and I, Andy, are about the same age. And so when I was at Merck, I went through a couple of promotions where they brought, promoted me into a role I really wasn't competent for, the Director of Change Leadership and Development. And as part of that, we designed a process to teach very senior people how to facilitate complex meetings around a procurement reengineering project. So that's kind of where I got my start was at Merck. Back then, you remember Michael Hammer was you know, sort of one of the pundits who was doing you know, process reengineering work, I think dead or alive. I think he's dead. I'm trying to remember at this point, because you and I, Andy, are getting getting on there. I'm not even sure we're middle age at this point. I'm 59. I think I saw yesterday, middle-age
1: ends at 60. So I got another year left. Mark's got a few more. My favorite definition is old is 10 years older than you are today. That's what I'm going (laughs) for
0: exactly but when we get together with our friends from way back when we feel like we're 21 still but when i'm on the pickleball cart right now uh, i feel it right i'm sure i've got a couple hip replacements on the way here soon and so that's where i really got exposed to it was when i was at merck and you know as i said i had a lot of really good people who uh, i was able to learn from when i was the director of change fancy title for you know, really doing internal
1: cultural transformation work at Merck. So the theme, the theme for today's show, and we're not quite sure what the title is going to be. We're bouncing around some things. Uh, Mark, you said your favorites was the first, the first draft. Your meetings suck. Now what? Yeah, that would be good clickbait. Meetings: the good, the bad, the ugly. Evan, in preparing for this show, you offered up. Ah, so we meet again. Anyway, let's let's talk about what do we mean by meetings. And then we'll, we'll dive into some some data. Who wants to share a, a definition, a working definition of what the heck is a meeting anyway? Well, I mean, Mark, I'd be interested in your take because you're,
0: you know, have been inside organizations more recently than I have, right? I left Merck in 95 and then was with a big healthcare company through 96, but you, you've been sitting in, client, in inside organizational meetings more recently than me, so how would you think about it?
2: Well, I think there's both what they are and and what they should be. Um, and, I, and I think largely what they are is a bunch of people getting together and talking about some generally poorly defined subject. Uh, whether or not they do anything, whether they make any decisions or do any planning or in those things, is kind of is kind of hit and miss. And, but uh, what meetings should be is a very targeted event where the right people are in the room and they're there for a specific purpose and they know what that purpose is and they know how they're going to achieve that goal.
1: love it. Evan,
2: what, if anything, would you add?
0: Yeah. I I mean, there's different types of meetings, right? There are meetings that are informational meetings where there's some expert presenting information. A lot of those should be killed because you probably can use an email to send the deck around, there are status update meetings where, you know, basically we're updating people, what's happening in the department of the project, but the types of meetings that Mark's getting at is what we call a collaborative problem solving and decision-making meeting. We're trying to make a decision. Maybe we're trying to figure out how to allocate capital, right, or decide what's gonna be, you know, on the dashboard for something, but we're getting a group together to try to get them to achieve something Right, collaboratively. And I've seen so many meetings where the implicit objective is discuss. That's it, discuss to what end? Right. To just entertain each other. And you know, that's the, the key is is the group to Mark's point crystal clear why they're there? And most of the time they're not, and are they clear what they're trying to do? And it discuss to what end? Make a decision, build a list of recommendations, figure out how we're going to design a new process. So a meetings, I think anytime you get more than two people together yeah. with some sort of objective or goal to achieve
1: collectively. Got it. So listeners, challenge. You can look at your calendar if you want to. Ballpark. What percentage of your total working time is spent in meetings? 10, 20, 90, 100? And then, and then what proportion of those are good, productive, and useful? And we want to explore that. The, bold hypothesis of what if our businesses, our teams eliminated those meaningless or unproductive meetings replaced with something else? What would that look like? Andy,
2: maybe another addition to that. I, f- I frequently ask this question of, of people who I'm coaching, which is when you look at that calendar, I ask people to go through their meetings and say, what would happen if I didn't go to that meeting? And the, the answer of absolutely nothing is uh shockingly frequent.
1: Why do we put up with this? And and so I want to I want to tap into both of your data banks here. Is this a is this a new problem or is it just been around for decades upon decades and we just tolerate it? Thoughts?
0: From my perspective, it's been decades and decades. I've been, you know, teaching people complex collaborative facilitation for almost 30 years. And I've asked two questions to clients. The first one is how many meetings in your organization? Of course, that depends on the size of the organization. But a big global client with 70,000 people, I used to work for Merck, they could have 200,000 meetings in a day. The second question I always ask them is what's the average effectiveness of the meetings? And in 29 years of doing this, I've never heard a client say 80%. Rarely, I'm probably on one hand where it's 70%. I can't tell you how many times people say 50% or lower. And I always say, let's do the math. okay, You're spending a hundred thousand, you're running a hundred thousand meetings in a day. You're running them. We'll give you seventy percent. And rarely did they say that. That's a C minus. Think about the massive loss to an organization's effectiveness. I don't know why people tolerate. Part of it, I think, is political, right? Senior people hold meetings, and it's performative to some degree. And we go because we feel politically we have to go. And Mark's right. you know. Why should we go to a meeting if the leader can't tell us why we're here, what we're doing, what my role is? But we go. And it's been around for decades.
1: Huge impact on, on a couple of key measurable outcomes. Uh, productivity. You mentioned one, right? Yep. Uh, employee engagement. Yeah. You shared with me, Evan, uh, uh, an article from The Atlantic. I think it was last yep.
0: year. That was in December. I think it came out.
1: So what? What was there data there? Was there some correlation between just the sheer number of meetings and employee engagement? Do you remember? Yeah, I'm.
0: I, I don't remember the specific data, but obviously someone did a survey, and it was they directly tied employee happiness to the number of miserable meetings we're forced to sit through, and when organizations have cut back on meetings right? Your happiness goes up. I mean, and it's, think about it, engagement is like if we're not feeling good, there's no way the results we seek are going to be what we need, and we just are forced to endure misery. Now, look, I've done a lot of meditation. I wouldn't say I'm a Buddhist, but what's the first noble truth? Life is suffering, I think at the meeting level, that's where the suffering starts in an organization.
2: <laughs> is in meetings. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if you know, ninety mm-hmm. percent of employees at any given company, if you said, "What's the worst part of your day?" Yeah. They, they would say meetings, or or crappy meetings.
1: Yeah, I think it. I think it has a huge impact, not just happiness, but joy, engagement, and how many meetings these days. Um, Are truly full of of engagement. I'm curious, there's also the thought that we have to get together to be productive. I I wonder if that's true. Has anybody looked at meeting free days? That always comes up, right? I I don't meet on Wednesdays, or I only meet on Wednesdays. is Is there data out there on the impact of fewer meetings and overall business productivity? I think there is. I don't know off the top of my head, but I've seen a, a, a lot
0: of things that say there are a lot of organizations are going even to three-day meeting-free days, right? And there, it has an impact on productivity because people now need to think about with the time we're together, we want to make sure we make it useful. So off the top of my head, I don't know the data, the data, but I know it is there, right? Because I've read articles about it. And I think the pandemic had a pretty big impact on meetings. People started having, I think I saw some data, maybe 10% more meetings. And a lot of that, I think, was performative because we were in our homes and people were like, well, I got to show I'm doing something. So they were putting meetings on the calendar. And it, it, it was a lot of times just to give some sense. We were doing something sitting here in our homes at our desk. And so meetings I know have gone up during the pandemic uh, significantly.
1: So I want to circle back on why we tolerate this, right? We're, we're otherwise intelligent people making unintelligent choices. You mentioned performance, politics. I'm curious, what are what are other reasons that people are afraid or reluctant to say no to that next meeting invite? This is a toss-up, either one of you. Mark, what are your
2: your thoughts on that? I think there are a couple of things, and uh, fear of missing out is probably pretty close to the uh, to the top of the list. But I think a lot of people just feel an obligation when they receive a meeting invite, especially if it's from someone who is senior to them in the organization, that they're obligated to go. And I'm not—I don't mean if it's their boss. I just mean anybody who is senior to their to their particular role. They feel an obligation to go.
0: Yeah, and, and I would agree with that. And I want to. I... On workshops, I tell people, look, if the leader can't tell you why they're having the meeting, what you're they're trying to get done, uh, what your role is there, and they obviously you need some sort of agenda, why are you going? And I think we go because the culture is, you know, we need Facetime, we have to be there, and so it's just a habit that needs to be broken if we really want to have productive organizations. So many meetings, I think, should be killed just literally taken off the books. And when, interesting going back to where I learned GE Workout, I think they called it, when they did workouts. so in many ways it was bureaucracy busting, but they had a, I think it was called the ramp matrix. And when they brought people together, they were like, can we eliminate reports, approval processes, meetings, metrics, and the P was processes. Cause there's so many things that just get generated And then they become standing things. You know, we are, we're going to have these reports. We're going to keep measuring this. We're going to have these meetings that could be killed, but the bureaucracy just keeps them flowing. And that really is the starting point. It's like, what can we kill? Meetings, reporting, unnecessary approval. And that was what I thought was interesting about what Jack Welch was doing back when you and I were coming into our organizational life, Andy.
1: It takes a great deal of psychological safety to go up and say, why are we having this meeting? What's my role? I mean, that can be scary. What about working from the other direction uh, it, as, as a leadership coach? How do we talk and, and make it clear to leaders that it's in their best interest to, uh, to get rid of crappy meetings? What's the impact on them? Their reputation. Their
0: well, I think reputation is a great word, right? Because if I'm a leader, right, and I'm running, let's still give you 70%, but I promise, Mark, you've probably seen it's 30%. you know. And I'm taking people's time and wasting it, right? That's where my reputation as a leader is being developed. Right? They don't see me when I'm off coming up and designing a spreadsheet or doing something on my own. They see me when I take their time. And so really a meeting is a moment of truth. It is a moment where our leadership reputation is being sealed Mm. and people don't hate meetings. They really don't hate meetings. They hate wasting their time. And so many meetings are just a complete waste of time. And and so in many ways, senior people, they haven't been trained in this. They've been trained, every senior person is trained on presentation skills, executive presence, and that's important. I'm not minimizing that from a communication standpoint. Most of them, or rarely are they trained in how to get groups to collaborate to try to actually get results. So a lot of meetings are presentations. And then the question is, why do I have to go there to a presentation? Send me the deck, right? I can read. If we're going to bring people together, there should be a reason to get them to have diverse stakeholders to do something. But it can't just be presenter updates. And that's the thing. So many meetings are just one way and they're a waste of time.
1: Yeah before we get into how to have better meetings uh, you just you mentioned a couple of meeting alternatives should have been an email is the the classic what else is in your your either of your toolboxes for we're going to cancel these meetings and here's the alternative to accomplish the same thing what else you have mark you probably have more
0: experience than than this because i'm a specialist in some ways i'm a a hammer, you know, looking for nails. I'm really good at this. It's a slick hammer and it's a great hammer. Uh, and y- at the same time, you know, Mark, you may have more experience around other options for meetings
2: beyond email. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, the, the one that comes immediately to mind has to do with any sort of status update on anything that looks like a project. And I think there are you know, the, the tools that are used now are pretty effective in reporting. And, uh, you know, I've seen so many times where a senior VP or a VP wants to get together to have a status meeting and talk about things that are readily available through self-service. And that, that's one of those. And, and you know, just as a, as a coach, this is one of those I get in, in these conversations with the people who prepare that data and the people who consume that data, when the people who prepare the data say, hey, I get all this stuff ready so that I don't have to have a status meeting. And then the person who's supposed to consume it refuses to, and we go to a dumb meeting to talk about what's already there. So I, th- I think a lot of stuff like that could that, those sorts of meetings could be cut off almost immediately. And that would that would not only free up the time and the context switching that goes into them, but it would make people feel about the work that they're putting in anyway.
1: Yeah, that's huge. That that context switch, that planned interruption in your day, that uh, you know is coming. Yep. So let's let's switch gears and talk about what what high performance meetings um, and how to have them, and share some resources. So we, we've talked about good meetings making sure that, that people don't just, it's not activity theater, don't just get stuff done, but get the right stuff done at the right time with the right people. I'm trying to think of some of my favorite books from the past about meetings. I'm curious what you've got. I, one of the early ones was Lencioni's Death by Meeting. Yeah. That was a great fable. What else do you have out there? Well, it's interesting. Lencioni, we always bring him up. One of his
0: more recent books, The Advantage, Mm. Uh, it talks about, really, what do we have as an organization is a true differentiator It's the health of the organization. And he also talks about the centrality of meetings to the health of the organization. Because meetings are important, certain types of meetings. If we're going to use them, they better be well run. Because if we're just running meetings to run meetings, it's toxic. It drains the organization. And so I've always loved Lencioni's work as a, because it's just so simple to access, right? And he, you know, he works at the C-team level and we've gone in after a client where he's working at the C-team level, working a level or two down, teaching people how to run, you know, high stakes meeting. But I'm not, the honest truth is I'm not that verse in the literature. Like I'm not an agile person, you all are. I train tons of the agile scrum, uh, you know, project managers because they have to facilitate, but I am not that on top of some of the, you know, tech, the Jira, Asana, you know, Slack. I hear all these terms, but I don't really know
1: how they help people. I, I think it's better that way for you, Evans. You know, don't go there. <laughs> don't go into that room. It's scary. I'm too old to learn that stuff. Mark, you got any favorite
2: titles that come to mind? No, I'm 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 far less literate when it comes to so. But just put my. My uh, my reading about how to lead a meeting ended in about 2010. So as as soon as I had Evans workbook, that that's my uh, that's my it's reference. And if I, if I need some new tool or technique, I have the inter Google to help me out. So uh,
1: awesome.
0: And, and Mark, I can't remember when we ran this. Were we still using three ring binders back then, or yep. have we gone to corkscrew binders? Because now we're doing it electronically. But I think I
2: have one of each actually. <laughs> like, like i That's said, right I've,
0: I've, done, I've done the course twice yeah by the time we got to contest i think we had uh, gotten to the, the corkscrew spiral the binding. and yeah. uh but i mean I, I i talked to people who took the course you know 20 years ago and they hold up that three ring binder frankly we do videotaping they hold up the vhs tape you know, when I go back far enough, we were taping people on VHS, and now these kids have no idea what a VCR is, but, you know, it goes back that far.
1: Get off my lawn. All right, so, so you have some wonderful ideas, whether they're in binders, spiral-bound, or online, on what it takes to have a well-run meeting. And I suspect the missing sauce is facilitation.
0: Yeah, Yeah, and I always work with people, I I have them think, there's so many different books we've all read on leadership. Uh, One of the simplest ways to think about leadership is simply on a continuum, where on the one extreme, you could be the expert, right? You could be the person who knows the most about the system you're designing, and you bring a group together as the expert. And as the expert, you're deciding for the group and presenting, right? That's presentation skills, the other side of the extreme is what we call uh, process experts, right? Where even if you have expertise, you know how to bring the right people together, you have skills in collaboration, and you stay completely neutral on what the system looks like, right? Because you trust the group has the expertise. And so, really, to me, the art of leadership is knowing how to get a group to come together, get alignment around why they're doing things, what they're doing. You bring the process expertise to help bridge the expertise of the group to help them achieve an objective. And that is the art of leadership It's just pure process facilitation. And that's what I've always done is work in neutral mode, knowing when people go back in the real world, they're in the middle of the continuum. They're gonna make decisions for teams. If you can get a group of team to make a decision, never tell them what you think, that is the art, as long as it's the best decision I and mean, they buy in. That is the art, and you can do it. You can be yeah. a great leader and never tell people what to think or do.
1: Well, there's David Marquet's work where he talks about he he's only making one decision as as the leader, and and he puts it in the context of a nuclear attack submarine, and his is fire. Everything else is disseminated to the crew with mission clarity and and confirmation of competency. So it makes a lot of sense. But in in today's world, when we talked a little bit about the leader being in the room, there's that power dynamic in a meeting. The danger of both formal positional in the org chart hierarchy, informal relationship influence. I'm curious how your model and, and the... The beautiful hammer that you have begins to tackle some of those dynamics well to me
0: if you we pick up with the assumption you have a reason to bring people together right we're not on the side of which meeting should be killed which shouldn't and so it starts with uh, are you clear why you're here what you're doing right can you design a good process? But I think what you're getting at, Andy, i think someone at Microsoft. They called it the Hippo model of decision making. Right, the highest what paid person's opinion. It's the senior person, and everyone has diversity initiatives going on, right? And there are and they're important, right? DEI initiatives are important. But I like to think about diversity a little more broadly. In addition to the traditional categories of diversity, gender, race, there's cognitive diversity. Mm -hmm. Right. There's leadership style diversity. There's introverts. There's extroverts. There's junior people, senior people on global teams. There's different cultures. And so what we need to know how to do is hold space so we don't let the hippo impose his or her will on the group, because it could be that very junior person who might be a person of color. Right, who's maybe dialing in from Japan in a culture where they want to perhaps save face, their boss is on the line, who has exactly the expertise to help the group make a better decision, but it is very hard to get them to weigh in. And so what we're trying to teach people is the art of holding space so every voice gets to engage around the problem because it's sometimes the junior people closest to the work that can help the seniors, the hippo people, you know, learn what really is happening and they never get engaged. So that's a lot of what we're teaching people is how to hold space for all the categories of diversity.
1: There are so many variations in today's world between in-person, hybrid, virtual, size, culture. How do those factor in? Spend a little time on it. We we can't cover them all. We We only have an hour, but how does that, how does the facilitation approach change or not depending on in-person versus virtual or hybrid or small or large? I don't think it does, right? Because
0: we teach five simple core things, right? And the metaphor we use often is, you know, we can think about a project or a meeting, or a task force I'm leading, or a consulting engagement, or even an agenda item on a meeting, with the metaphor of a plane flight, right? We're, we're all here in the Denver area, right? But, and I'm going down to Tucson, you know, to go look at a you know possible home to buy. And there's three parts of that flight, right? Takeoff, which when we're sitting on the gen- jetway at DIA and the engines hit, it's like 30 seconds, the plane's in the air. That's where most meetings crash on takeoff. Once the plane's in the air and we're flying or executing the project, the meeting, the task force, we generally stay in the air. Although there are plane hijackers. We have to teach people how to how to handle those hijackers. And then again, the third point is bringing it in for a landing, and so if we hold that metaphor, it doesn't matter whether the meeting's face-to-face. It doesn't matter whether we're using you know, Microsoft Teams or WebEx or we, you know, Zoom, right? The platform we're te- that we're teaching people is independent, right? Whether it's hybrid, I, and it does not matter. They need to learn how to take off well, handle the plane hijackers, how to hold space, how to land the plane, because people do a horrible job of closing meetings, right? And then we got to teach them how to design meetings because most of the problems with meetings can be avoided by good design before we show up. And that's really, I don't think it matters what the platform is. And we used to run our program, right? Face-to-face. Because back when you and I were starting, Andy, a big company had no problem flying, you know, 30 people into Paris. Yep. And spending thousands of dollars. There were none of these platforms. And now we're doing the exact same thing that we used to do face-to-face. It's all virtual. I'm not, or We're really not running the face-to-face program anymore. Because I, you know, most of my, are my clients, as I'm sure yours, they're just not running face-to-face meetings, except as the exception. So I don't think it really matters.
2: Mark, your thoughts? Yeah, Evan, a little little bit off off topic there, but you touched on something that I think is, is really important. When I was in high school, I worked at an auto body shop, and I, I worked <laughs> in the paint shop. And so I I was always trying to soak up information because I wanted to paint my own car someday. But I would talk to the painter Oh, how do you, how do you do this? And how do you get it all perfect? And the answer was always a good paint job is in the prep work. It's not in the application of the color. And so I I look at meetings that way sometimes uh, or not sometimes all the time, because I think that's, that's where you make or break your meeting is how you set things up. If you, if you don't put the work in to design a good meeting, your chances of getting a good result are very, very, very slim.
1: I love it. That reminds me so gosh, when was this? I, I took one of my first Lisa Atkins workshops, and it was either the facilitation or coaching agile teams. And she she talked about exactly that, but not in the same metaphor, the body shop. She talked about the container as a open top box. Fold them flat. There's the beginning, the prep work, so important. The actual meeting, and then the closing work. And a, and I'm curious. For both of you, how do you know if the prep work was good enough? What's your method for getting feedback? Was this meeting time a good investment or was it crap? Because we're all practicing. None of us are perfect. Practice, practice, practice. But how do you find out if it was a good meeting or bad?
2: I'm going to defer to Evan because closing is my weak spot.
1: (laughs) Well, I, I think, first
0: of all, managing time. We do a horrible job of it we're not realistic about what can get done in an hour meeting, we jam pack the meeting with more agenda items that are ever going to happen, which means we have to steamroll through the group and there's no time for conversation. And that's why we only hear from the hippos. And so if we're not managing time well, what a lot of people do instead of landing the plane at the end of the meeting, they keep talking faster. And what happens is people drop off. It's like, I got a three o'clock, you know, I got to go. And so in terms of feedback, what we always teach people in closing the meetings, there's really four steps and it's all obvious. Nothing we're doing is is rocket science. Number one, a lot of people use parking lots to be taking things offline and triaging issues that don't fit the purpose of today's meeting or the objectives of today's meeting, but it is relevant to the bigger project. So we got to close the parking lot. We had objectives for the meeting and we don't always, get, don't always achieve them. So I gotta come back to the objectives and say, all right, what do we get done? What didn't we get done? And then the third thing is we better drop off those meetings crystal clear who's gonna do what by when. Cause you know, at a meeting level, we're building action plans and then the feedback piece is, you know, the continuous improvement piece plus Delta after action reviews, things you would do after sprints, but we take it down to the meeting level, which what went well, And what do we want to take a look at? And I got to be ready as the leader of meeting to get feedback from the group because a lot of the dysfunctions in meetings is me not being very effective leading the group. But we always encourage continuous improvement plus deltas at the end of a meeting because a project obviously is a chain of many meetings over time and they better be getting better every single meeting. And so that's the way we teach people how to close the
1: meeting. How do you know if the data is accurate or people are just doing normative conformity. (laughs) It was the boss's meeting. It was a nine out of 10, damn it. Well, I would say a couple of things. If you really want true feedback, I would do it
0: anonymously after the meeting, right? Because if we do it in the meeting, it's a little harder unless the team is really, right, from a forming, storming, norming, performing standpoint, performing. And when we're at that stage, people are straight. Because when I used to do team buildings, Multi-day, a lot of what we were doing is te- teaching people how to give straight feedback to folks. And so I don't know that the data, it's hard to tell what the data is uh, in terms of that. But I think the data at the end of the day is, did you achieve the objectives hmm. and did the group buy in? And so I think the data really is, did we get the results we're seeking? And of course, when we go put them out there in the real world, well, there could be rework cycles you know, because we didn't. You know, come up with the best possible decision. we're going to have another meeting and have to come back at it. So I'm not the hugest data person, Andy. I'll leave that to to you. you folks are out there doing a little more more work at, at a little more rigorous level that, than I am
1: mm, well thanks. well, speaking of managing time we're we're coming up to the end of our time box for for either mark or Evan. Is there a topic you wanted to explore, something I didn't ask about, something you wanted to say? Before we wrap, Mark, anything from your end? Well, I,
2: I I think from from my end in watching, I don't know, tens of thousands of meetings over the course of my career is I, I love what what Evan teaches and I think it's highly effective, but I would encourage people to do something because ch- chances are pretty good right now that your meetings suck. So whether or not you want to use Evan's model or some other model, take something on to get better because it's really not fair uh, for you to spend your company's money ineffectively, um, so that I guess that's my uh, parting shot.
1: Nice one, hit the mark, Evan. Tell us more about that workshop. Yeah, we used to run it as a three-day
0: face-to-face training, and it's a boot camp. You know, I've run it, ran it for the Air Force. Uh, well, you know, a little before the pandemic, and you know, the Air Force, you know, the military talks about uh, wanting to put people under pressure, under stress before they have to go out into combat. Now the workshops, not that kind of boot camp, but people will get worked right I, you know it's a, the, the virtual version now is a four day program run across two consecutive weeks where module one and two and I just finished a program with an energy client I actually started the first two modules and finished yesterday. I'm gonna run the next two modules next Monday and Tuesday. but most of it is practice, right the boot camp, the stress test where people are getting videotaped. They're getting intensive feedback and coaching because people learn through practice, right? They do not learn through lecture. If we had a four-day program where I was lecturing, I'm not that interesting. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's like people need to be worked. They need to be pushed outside their comfort zone. And that's what we do in the program is there's, there's two practice labs. Because I have so many clients today, they come in there, they're welcome to observe senior people on fourth day of our program to see what it is. And they come in, they're like, I love this. My people need this. And here's what I need, Evan. Send me 10 two-hour videos my people can watch at their computer, self-paced learning on how to do this. And I say, I'm not interested. I say, go find another consultant who's going to waste your time and money. Because if they're old enough, I'll be like, do you have kids who learn to drive? And they're like, yeah, of course. I say, would you have ever let your kids watch 10 videos on how to drive? and hand them the car keys you never would do this but we want a quick fix right and the reality is people learn by doing exactly. and that's the program it's just get your butt up here or now butt up there when they were face to face now we're in the screen in these little tiles and people got to get worked and that's what we do it is just a boot camp for practicing high stakes facilitation with senior people when your leadership reputation is on the line.
1: Sounds fascinating. What are the best ways for our listeners to get in touch with you to learn more and maybe even sign up?
0: Yeah. I mean, you can go to our website, which I assume you'll put in the show show notes. It's a mouthful.
1: will we'll, we'll put the correct spelling into show notes.
0: Yeah. And put slash virtual because that's our broader consulting offering. And the honest truth, I'm getting older. Mostly I'm teaching people how to do this and not really doing a ton of consulting anymore. And you can look at my LinkedIn page, right? i I did a search. I I was surprised. There were like eight Evan Ungers. I thought my name was rather unique, but there must be a lot of, you know, Hungarian gypsies out there. And I know one of them was, it was a doctor uh, who my shrink, one of my shrinks knew him. He was like, I I know an Evan Unger, but I'll be that guy with the sort of shit eating grin with a blue (laughs) shirt. And you can link to it from there. So, uh, you know, I'll be one of the older ones uh, there.
1: Awesome. We will we'll put links to the show notes. Thanks again to my co-host Mark Story from Anvil Velocity and our meeting fixer Evan Unger, and to you, our listening audience. If you enjoyed this episode, uh, let us know through a review, a rating, comments on that podcast platform of your choice. If you'd like to join the discussion and share your stories about good, horrible, and oh my god, nightmarish meetings, join our Discord server. There's an active community. See the show notes for a link. And finally, support from listeners just like you. Help us cover our hosting and podcast costs. For as little as pennies a day, you can get some cool Agile Uprising swag. Until next time, this is the Agile Uprising Podcast. Signing out. And we're off the air. And now this is the best part of the show. (laughs) I keep the recording going because... I used to stop it, and it was like, damn, I wish we had the recording on because there's some good snippets in there.
2: Yeah, I I like Evan as as the meeting fixer. I'm just just wondering if you are uh, more akin to Mr. Wolf from Pulp Fiction or Mike from uh, Breaking Bad. (laughs) That that is a a good question. I'd say
0: uh, maybe a little more Mike from Breaking Bad uh, in terms of doing some behind-the-scenes work. Uh, yeah, and so that is that is a great metaphor. Mm.